Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from Continuum. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Los Angeles, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. And for us at Continuum, innovation means getting from that early brainstorming of, wouldn't it be cool if we could, blah, 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 all the way through to the finish line of making something real. The Resonance Test is where we get to chat with the kinds of folks who are doing this kind of innovation with their work, whatever that work may be. From building buildings to repeatedly coming out with new comedy material, we're interested in how people get inspired and then get things from mind into matter. Because in our opinion, you can really only make an impact on people's lives if you can get your stuff out there into the world. We're coming at you today from Continuum's brand spanking new Boston headquarters, located in the Innovation and Design Building in Boston's Innovation District here in the Seaport. We've only been here for three weeks, and it's already making an impact on the kinds of things we can do. We had some terrific partners who took pains to understand what kind of space we needed for our Continuum brains, and it's super exciting to have with us today one of our architects behind the design of the space, Eric Howler from Howler & Yoon. Thank you for joining us today, Eric. Thank you. Eric is a principal at and co-founder of the internationally recognized architecture and design studio Howler & Yoon, which he formed with his professional and life partner, Mijin Yoon. Howler and Yoon have won numerous awards for their work, including most recently the Audi Urban Futures Award in 2012. They've authored a number of books and have had their work exhibited at museums around the world. And best of all, they're based here in Boston with us, where they've created a number of public spaces and architectural designs that are influencing the lives of people in this city on a daily basis. Eric, we are super jazzed to have you here today in the very space that has itself journeyed from what was in your mind into our daily reality. So thank you so much for coming. Um, I hope it's fun to see the place with us in it now. Uh, we are also joined today here with Lee Moreau, a principal here at Continuum in Service and Experience Design, the president of Bringing Sexy Back, and the person who probably had more involvement on our end than anyone else in bringing the new space to life. So, hi, Lee. Hi. Hi, Pete. How are you? I'm terrific, Lee. Uh, I know that you worked closely with Eric and Mijin through the process, so today we'll be hearing a little bit more about what that was like, uh, how Howler and Yoon approaches projects such as this. Um, and especially with clients like us who have a lot of specific needs around the kind of mental work that we're trying to accomplish. So, Lee, I think I'll turn it over to you at this point. Great. Thank you for that introduction. Really kind of humbling and wonderful and fantastic. That was the goal. Okay. Well, um, so, Eric, thank you for coming in. Yeah. Um, I just want to talk to you about the space. We've been collaborating now for almost a year and a half, I think, on this project. Um, and I've got to start with the yellow floor. So it's one of my favorite and most interesting parts of the project. I've heard it described as a sort of French's mustard yellow, among other things. And I'm, I know why you picked that particular color, thanks to the brand work that we were doing. But I'd like to understand a little bit more about your thought process around what that floor is meant to do. OK. Um, so um, in terms of describing the project, it's a really big floor plate. It's 50,000 square feet. Um, it would take you 10 minutes to walk from one end to the other. Um, when we started the process, we talked about it almost at the scale of a piece of a city. You know, we actually talked about it as urbanism, not actually as architecture or interiors. So that was kind of fun. And then thinking about what kind of city would you like to work in? You know, if we think about what uses are in the city, you know, there's cafes, there's, you know, places to hang out, there's places to buy things or sleep. Um, so what would be the kind of centralized sort of space that would gather? I mean, it's kind of like a plaza, you know. Uh, so we toyed with the idea of a plaza. In fact, we drew it as a Noli plan, which um, is a drawing that was done of Rome, which showed all the plazas 
and all the churches as, as white and everything else as black. So we drew it as a piece of urbanism, which is kind of cool. Um, if it was a plaza to sort of gather around, um, how would you define it? Um, and we, we drew a couple of things where we said maybe we can imply it you know, with two planes as opposed to defining it sort of with, with spatial means. The yellow was one technique, um, just to sort of make it pop. Um, if you look around, the palette is very monochrome. It's all white and white and shiny white and flat white. Um, and then there's a little bit of chrome, just a little sparkle of chrome here and there. Uh, so silvers and, and metallic colors. But the yellow is really the only color that we introduced. And I think that really sort of refines the, the palette. Um, it also means that the work is actually foregrounded because everything else recedes. Everything is white, and then if you're working on something cool, like a new product, it really sort of stands out. So it's about, I think, a kind of parallax of like what's receding and what's sort of coming into the foreground. Um, we've also talked about it as like this artificial sun. You know, it's like um, you know Oliver Eliasson did that sun in the Tate, you know, which sort of created almost a kind of artificial illumination. And we think so much about work is about sort of experience and perception and having a warm bright color in the middle somehow I mean it, it I don't, don't want to say it animates it but it kind of illuminates it in an interesting way not by actual illumination but by chromatic kind of illumination so when we were sort of embarked on this project um, and, and you your team was engaged and was was working on the project we noticed your, your team studying the way that our employees were working in our offices in West Student at our old location uh, did you engage in ethnographic research? It felt, it looked a little bit like that, and it cer certainly at times felt like that. Um, and if you did, what were the chief insights from that research, and how did it lead to some of the, uh, the, the way you developed the project here at the Innovation and Design Building? Yeah, I mean, we certainly did. Um, and I think I, um, I might have mentioned that the first time I visited Continuum, I was so struck by the layout and the kind of the informal quality of it, the sort of distributed sofas and ping pong tables and um, phone booths and the, and the shower. Um, the shower is something that really stood out as a method for studying how to design a better shower head. The shower was, you know, really um, uh, a tool for studying the way that people shower so that we could create a new kind of bathing experience. So yeah. for those of you listening, uh, yes. just to put that in perspective. Yeah, no, it really stuck out in my mind that this is a bunch of people that aren't just going to design a shower head without doing a lot of showering themselves and observing of showering. So we knew that that was part of your methodology. And we thought, you know, if we were going to design a space for these guys, we would have to do it in a way that the design process would seem familiar, but also a little different. So we did spend a lot of time observing, but also interviewing and, and meeting with so many different people. We did take all that data or all those responses and we try to visualize them graphically and we did produce a series of relationship diagrams between different users who they said they were talking to who they felt they needed to talk to who they weren't talking to and by mapping those we did sort of realize that there was uh, one entity that wasn't connected everyone said it was the heart of the company this kind of making studio but it wasn't actually connected to anybody and that was just because it was sort of in the in the corner and off to the side so it was it was central to the mission, but peripheral to the space. Uh, and that was just a function of uh, how the space evolved over time, how things grew. And so by coming here, there was an opportunity to sort of reorganize things. And I think through the design process, they did putting the, the kind of shop and the kind of collaboration spaces right in the, in the center of it. 
and I'm pushing all the circulation through it. Really sort of forced everybody to literally walk through the shop on their way to their desks every day. So it creates new places for people to, to work and to hang out, but also for them to see what everyone else is doing. Uh, it creates a new kind of visibility and sort of re-centers the, the center of gravity for the company. Um, and walking through it today and recently, you really get a sense that there's a lot going on. I mentioned to you, Lee, that in the past, maybe it was going on, but it wasn't as, as visible. And now it's unavoidable. Everyone sees it. And it's so exciting to see all this activity, all this sort of buzz uh, around the shop at the center of the, at the company. We were hoping to achieve that, um, that level of uh, visualized and uh, inhabited collaborative spaces. Because we have, as you know, we have a lot of redundancy of space. We have desks and we have project rooms. We have all kinds of different types of rooms that, that um, require, which means a, a company like ours grows to be 50,000 square feet, which is quite large. Um, what I love about the space is that it feels architectural. It is an office space. You know, we are on on the fourth floor of a building, um, but it has this architectural feel that I I was hoping for, but I wasn't sure we'd be able to achieve. And so how did you, what are some of the tools that you used um, formally to kind of achieve that architectural feel that is kind of undeniable? Everybody who's come through so far has been marveling by the scale of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned the, this idea of urbanism. You know, it's at the scale of a city or a piece of a city. So there's a kind of urban idea about you know where's the where's the plaza? Where's the you know where are the uh, the quiet areas? Where are the active areas? Um, it's also the scale of furniture. It comes down to the detail of the desk and the table and the, and the sofa. So there's a kind of material quality to it. I think it's it's an incredible challenge to go from like organizing something at the scale of the city to sort of resolving something at the scale of a of a quarter of an inch um, and the the material and, and sort of texture of that. Um, I, I do think. As architects, we, we do think about big chunks of things, you know, big, you know, one of the first drawings we did was a black and white drawing, you know, what's enclosed and what's open. And that's the Noli map. It's the kind of black and white, you know, what's public and what's private. Uh, and sort of doing studies at that scale, we sort of moved the kind of big volumes around. And it was a 50-50 split between project rooms, conference rooms, private areas, and then open areas. And sort of manipulating that almost like a, um, like a gestalt diagram, like something that's like a black and white, you know, you know, at one point you look at it, it's an old lady, at another point you look at it, it's a young lady, or, you know, the, the two faces of a vase, you know, you see the vase, you see the two faces, like, it had that quality, you know, it could flicker between open or closed, and working on both figures, both the open space figure and the kind of, the, 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 the private space figure, um, that was kind of fun to sort of move that around at the scale of a city. Um, Ultimately, I think we arrived at something, you know, that, that totally worked. It creates these, this kind of multi-fingered central space where everyone can see everyone else. And I think that's super important to, to create that sort of visual contact. Um, it is not concentric. It is linear, you know, just given the constraints of the space and the, the grid of the columns so strong. But finding the way to weave those different moments, probably three different moments or four different moments through that, I think that's what gives it an architectural quality because it, it is at the scale of architecture even though it's an interior. I mean one of my favorite moments is the amphitheater which I think we've not quite fully been able to capitalize on. We've only been here a few weeks but um, this notion that we have a kind of very civic space uh, that's within the green zone within the front right after the front door of the space you can walk in and we can have a performance or a lecture or something like that. Uh, with an audience of 200 people. I mean, that that's the kind of scale of 
interaction that we were hoping to have here um, and it's such a was such a a big reason why we moved and it'll be really exciting to see how it all plays out so uh, you know at continuum we we like change um, it's part of what we do every day um, but to be honest moving our headquarters to Boston from the suburbs was a pretty dramatic change for us culturally um, in the process we've tried to use this effort to redefine the employee experience can you cite a few of the architectural forms or moves that you did beyond putting that shop in the center of this space um, that you've used to help maybe change or alter the employee experience? Yeah, when we first visited Continuum, we liked the kind of open plan and the kind of living room feel. It felt um, very informal, it felt very creative. Um, it felt like you could just sort of find a comfortable couch and sort of work there. And I love the couch facing the highway. That was like awesome. Um, but that was also on several floors and in two different buildings. And so basically moving to an, a big floor plate, you know, 50,000 square foot, more than an acre, you know. Uh, so you have more than an acre of space here. And that horizontality creates the new kind of connectivity. And there's a lot of research going on about how do people interact, how do you encourage interaction. And part of that has to do with proximity and adjacency but also who do you run into? And so how do we ensure that those kind of serendipitous encounters happen? You know, how do we engineer those things? So um, one of the things we did was we kind of created this kind of interlacing and I'm making a kind of uh, diagram with my hands of like fingers sort of interlocking. Um, and the, the spaces are actually kind of interlocking around the, the living room space. And those fingers are allowing sort of natural light to come in. They're also creating visual relationships between people. And I think one of the hard things to do previously was that People were working in the same company, but they weren't understanding themselves or they weren't seeing themselves as a kind of collective. And so even the sightline question of like these kind of interlocking fingers, letting everyone see each other allows them to sort of perceive themselves as a, as a whole, as a, as, a, as a body, a collective body. Uh, so that was one little thing, you know, just simply sort of making sure that everyone can see everyone uh, and everyone has some natural light. So you're never sitting so far from natural light. Um, I think there are other strategies of like open plan landscape stuff, but um, here, you know, ultimately it's so site specific. It really has to do with like how it works in this building with this depth, with this arrangement, and the balance of open and closed spaces. So, um, you know, one of the reasons we hired you or re were really excited to work with you is uh, the Project Swing Time, which is actually just a few blocks away from our site here. So project on the lawn on D in, in the Seaport District next to the, the BCEC, the convention center here in Boston. Um, it's a playful space. Um, it's something, it's iconic. People gravitate to it and they engage. Talk about the role of play, both in swing time and then also the way you thought about play in, in our offices. Yeah, so I think one of the things we share is an interest in behavior. You know, architects presumably make buildings, but we also make behavior. Uh, and so, and I think a lot of what drives Continuum's work is user experience. How do people actually use it? So a lot of our work has to do with creating behaviors and how do we encourage people to interact with each other? How do we encourage them to interact with the, with the structure, with the space? Um, the Swing Time project was you know, playing on a very basic you know, need, which is to, to let loose. Um, you know, adults uh, sort of suppress it, but kids you know, just go wild. And so we designed a field of swings big swings, five feet in diameter, um, that everyone's invited to swing. You can swing alone, you can swing together. Uh, at nighttime, they're illuminated, and there's an accelerometer in each swing so that as you swing, it changes color, and it sort of incentivizes swinging. So you, if you want to make it go pink, you have to swing 
a lot. And those are simple, little, very simple electronic things that, that make it a little bit more enticing, a little bit more alluring. Um, they're kind of enhanced, you know, swing, as if you needed an invitation to swing, you know. But just watching how people work and in this space, but play in other spaces. And I think the line between work and play, certainly here, seems a little blurry. Uh, we notice the ping pong tables. We noticed a lot of like people shooting basketball. You know, there is a kind of playfulness in the work that I think brings out the best thinking. Um, and so how do we, as designers, sort of encourage that, augment that, amplify that, and sort of extract that um, through playful design moves that, that get everyone to be a little bit more relax a little bit more creative so eric i perhaps you can hear the sound in the back and f forgive us out there if, if if you hear any construction work we're still getting this thing uh buttoned up but um so hopefully that's not too disruptive i did want to talk to you a little bit about um your shareway 2030 project um, which i think is a really provocative uh vision for transportation and urban mobility in the northeast corridor or what you've defined i think as boss wash the area between Boston and Washington, D.C. Um, can you tell us more about how that, tell us more about the project in general and also how it fits into Audi's overall vision for the future? I know that was your kind of proposal for the Audi Urban Futures Award and, and, and uh, it's a curious blend of both urban planning and corporate visioning that I think is very unique and very in line with some of the things that we're doing. Okay, yeah, that was a, a project in 2012. Um, Audi was, uh, in a way, sourcing ideas from different designers about the future of mobility. I think they perceived that something was changing and there's a paradigm shift in, in their market. And they felt that, in a way, in order to evolve, in order to survive, in a way, they had to sort of reposition themselves or rethink their relationship to the city. Um, in a way, they'd focus on the car and now they say, we're going to focus on the context. So sort of looking outside the car. And so they engaged with a different discipline architects and urbanists, which is unusual for them because they're usually inward focused, you know, designers, industrial designers, engineers. Um, I think that was incredibly open of them to sort of launch this initiative to look at cities and the future of cities. Um, they looked at different cities, Istanbul, Mumbai, Boswash, Tokyo. There's, a, there's been a number of cities that have been studied. The charge is what's the future of mobility? How are cities changing? So it's speculative. It's kind of looking into the future, trying to to find scenarios and finding design opportunities for that. Um, coming from Boston, um, competing literally with these other cities, uh, we thought, well, what's unique about Boston? And we kind of invented sprawl, I'm not proud of it, but we sort of did, the strip mall, all these kind of things. And we thought if we could find some mechanism, some corrective that we might be able to plan for some different model here, maybe that could be applied uh, around the world. We also realized that um, well, we didn't know how sprawl happened. Like, how did the American urbanized landscape become this way? You know, so there was a bit of research. You know, uh, the Highway Act. You know, we thought we know that, but there was something else happening. It wasn't just top down, kind of. We need highways. It was also bottom up. It was like, we want houses. We want yards and barbecues and Tupperware. It was like, it was the American dream that had somehow, you know, evoked itself. And so we thought, if we could provide an alternative American dream that people would desire they would bring about that future for themselves. It wasn't about imposing it on them, it was about them desiring it. And you know, so it was about design, but also desire, and, and designing desire, which I think is something that's super interesting, um, not just for architects and urbanists, but for, for, for everybody working in design. Um, we propose a series of, of proposals to tie mobility together better, 
um, not just cars, because we think it's really about a bigger mobility ecology. And we thought you really need to switch between modes and you need to share. You know, So those are two words we sort of locked in on. Um, and Audi, I think, really sort of took it to heart. And, and they've tried to apply these things in the past, in recent past. They've um, been working with different cities to implement some pilot projects. And I think they really do mean to test things in the world. They call them you know, test drives. You know, how do we uh, do these innovation projects? And there's some very interesting ones that are sort of coming soon um, to cities near you. Um, but Audi is working with cities to implement these uh, alternative mobility strategies, focusing on switching and sharing. At a higher level, you just mentioned this designing desire. Like, how is that? So you, obviously, there's some, there's a bit of that in the Audi work and a bit of that in Audi itself. But where is that located in the rest of your work? Is that is that something that you think about, or is that a phrase that you've used many times? Um, I mean, I think all designers sort of design desire. I mean, they're they're all sort of trying to find what is needed, what is wanted, what is accessible, what's inaccessible. You know, and I think if you can find that thing that is that is desired above all, I think then it's a much easier much easier way to bring design into the world. Um, it's also a way to sort of democratize design, saying like, I don't have to design all these things. I think if I can sell you that idea of that suburban house or that idea of that sort of um, multimodal commute, if you desire that for yourself, then you'll, then you'll realize it. You'll participate in the realization and you'll transform your own world without it you know, relying on, on us to do it. So I think it's about a kind of proliferation of, of design agency. Um, through desire. So Eric, obviously you're used to working at a range of different scales, whether it's a five foot diameter um, swing uh, on a lawn or um, the whole metropolitan area between Washington DC and Boston. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your work in Boston. You've become, let's say, your firm has become uh, relatively well established here and has done a lot of work recently, whether it's in the downtown in the city of Boston or here in our space. Um, talk to us about working in your your own territory, basically your backyard as your as your playground. Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, we um, we've been in practice for ten years. Uh, moved up from New York about ten years ago, um, and we always perceived ourselves a little bit as outsiders. Um, but recently, I think we have sort of um, really uh, engaged the city of Boston. You know, it's kind of unique qualities. Uh, a few years ago, we designed the Boston Society of Architects. We actually collaborated with with you, Lee, on that. Um, so uh, once we'd done that, it was hard to say that we weren't actually Boston architects. We actually were very much Boston architects. Um, and slowly, we've sort of gotten to know people and done more and more projects in and around the city. So the swings is nice. We did a, a sculpture at Dudley Square, which is a kind of interactive um, sort of light, light piece. Uh, we did the memorial at MIT. Uh, for the Sean Collier. Uh, so slowly we're starting to sort of distribute our work uh, around Boston. Um, we still do work overseas. We're still working for Audi. We've done a proposal for the Dubai 2020 Expo. Uh, did some work in China. But working in Boston, I think, um, you know, architecture is both global and local. Uh, that's kind of obvious. Um, being local, it's always, in a way, it's always local. Um, you have to know, when you're working in China, you have to know what they're looking for and how you can meet that need. Working in Dubai, they have very particular things they're looking for. Working in Boston, you know, it's a cerebral town. There's a lot of sort of intellectual people here. There's a particular kind of culture and history to the architecture here. In a way, it requires a little bit more, um, I would say, 
um, engagement. Um, we were working in downtown crossing um, within a context that's quite historic. And so what's the appropriate way to respond to that context to um, certainly be new and innovative, but within a context that has a kind of history, it has a tradition, it has a texture to it. So I think it really pushes us as designers to work harder in a way Working in Dubai, you can almost do anything. You know, it's almost a, an invitation to sort of go wild. I think in Boston, it requires much more measured, much more thoughtful, much more engaged. You know, um, attitudes about design. Um, so we've we've appreciated the challenge. It certainly tested us in some cases. Um, I mean, speaking of going wild, you mentioned the the work that you're doing in Dubai. We're really interested in, or I'm really interested in the Empathy Pavilion, which I saw on your website. Um, you know, we are. Uh, it invites visitors to be researchers, participants, performers. Um, what were people's reactions to this pavilion? Did you manage to to document any? Was there? How were you both documenting and then communicating empathy through the experience of that pavilion? What was your thought process there? Um, so that's a project that was um, originated by Todd Macover at the Media Lab, um, and he had been asked by the Dubai Expo uh, 2020 team to design a kind of performance um, to take place in, in Dubai. And in a way, the pavilion was really built around that performance. And the performance wasn't simply a, a kind of audience um, performer relationship. It was where everybody became, in a way, a performer. Uh, the brief was kind of amazing. Um, they asked if we could uh, teach empathy, you know, and, and current research in terms of empathy suggests that not only is it, you know, instinctive, but it also can be learned, it can be taught, can be analyzed from a kind of neurological point of view. So the idea was to have a series of labs within the pavilion where you would go through and experience different research in real time and participate in some of these tests. Uh, the goal was that, that you would Im emerge somehow transformed through this experience. And then it would culminate in a, in a, in a, in a kind of um, multimedia sensory uh, performance where you would become part of the performance. And then it would sort of put you out back in the world to sort of go off and, and, and be empathic. Um, but it was a kind of an amazing process to work with Todd, who's an who's amazing composer and sort of conceptualizer, fantastic storyteller. Uh, and go through this process to try to build a, a pavilion around a set of ideas and a set of experiences, which is kind of the opposite of how we often work architecturally. Uh, but it, from the inside out, it sort of produced, I think, a pretty strong um, expression. And then from the outside in, the kind of idea of self-shading and the kind of large sort of carved volumes uh, sort of located it, I think, within Dubai and the sort of climate context of Dubai. I mean, it's incredibly, for a uh someone who works in a design with a among a, a host of design thinkers from a bunch of different backgrounds I mean the three kind of primary aspects of design thinking in my mind or working in this way are empathy visualization and iteration and it feels like you're kind of locked in on all three um, and is that typical for architects um, how when you think see those three things empathy visualization and iteration is that typical to the way architects work you think you're doing something a little bit different can you I, I describe think, that i mean um those aren't the three terms i would use as an architect but i like the way you're using them um architects are often responding to a program or brief that's given they have assumptions about how people will use the space not all of them are very good at sort of following through and making sure that the space is used that way i think that um 
I was reading this book called After Art, which is about the image, not the authored image or the intention of the author, but the, the afterlife of the image, how it proliferates in the world and how it's received and interpreted. And similarly, I think there's something like after architecture, which is like architecture after you've taken the photos, architecture as it's used by different people. And I think that's something that we could do better on as a discipline. I think you guys do that sort of uh, from the start. I think we're sort of still catching up on that. So the question of behavior and empathy, how it's actually used, we call it post-occupancy in architectural terms. That's a huge, I think, space for us to, to do more work on. Uh, architects tend to be obsessed with, with form and geometry, with material. You know, the discourse of architecture is so much about those things, not as much about perception, behavior, um, you know, sensation, or, um, I don't know, the kind of the touchy-feely stuff that architects don't really like to get into. Uh, but I think that is, a, that is a, a way to go. I think that is a direction to move in. This, this notion of post-occupancy sounds terrible. Uh, you know, <laughs> and as somebody trained as an architect, I've heard the term before, but it's almost like post-occupancy is, is life, right? It's the life of the building. It's the life of the people yeah. within the building. And to call it merely post-occupancy is really kind of, kind of underplaying, I think, the demeaning. value. Right? It's underplaying the value of the work that you're of doing. Of the thing in the world, yeah. right? Um, whenever this thing about the loneliness of buildings and basically they're there in the world without you, you know, and you're not going to be there to explain them. <laughs> so that's one thing about intent, you know, how do you ensure that the building achieves what it wants to achieve without you standing there to, to uh, interpret it and explain it to people. I love that. So if we kind of redirect it back to the design of our space, because naturally all I want to do is talk about Continuum's new space and how awesome it is. Um, describe what some of the challenges were designing a space for an innovation de and design firm, um, also knowing that we have a space capability in-house. Um, talk about, <laughs> did yeah. you think about that? Was that no, uh, a point uh, of conflict? No, no, it was, it was very collaborative. Um, I mean, uh, we actually know some of your designers, um, so there's a lot of history there. I think we felt pretty comfortable. On the other hand, this is a firm full of designers, so you know a lot of opinions. Working for the BSA is similar. You know, 4,000 architects as your client. You know, a lot of opinions. So we're used to finding ways to sort of manage. I think lots of different opinions and trying to find and sort of rally around certain good ideas. We found that once the idea is good, I think people naturally sort of sort of are drawn to it. Uh, and it has its own momentum. Um, we did do things a little differently. Um, like I said, all the interviews and the kind of trying to work in the mode that you would expect that you would do yourselves, um, but slightly differently. I think if you had designed the space yourself, you certainly could have, uh, you would have probably had a different outcome. And so I think actually working across disciplines is often more productive than architects working on their own or designers working on their own. I think those kind of, same with Audi, working with transportation engineers, produces different outcomes, different learnings, and I think being open to those is always important. Um, working with you guys, I mean, there's, there's no uh, shortage of opinions, um, and oftentimes, you know, really good ones, sometimes not always good. So how do we sort of steer the discussion in a certain direction and hopefully sort of manage the big picture or the big outcome? It's easy to focus in on a detail, but do we still have the big idea here? And I think being able to zoom in and out that kind of parallax, I think, I think we kind of achieved something that works at the detail level and at the overall, at the urban scale. 
you know. When you just mentioned that there were a lot of opinions, everybody in the room just kind of started smiling so silently. So it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to get that. I, I'm sure on you a podcast. You didn't hear but, the smile, but, uh, but I saw it, was, it. But it was there. <laughs> um, so you know, as a somebody who follows you on uh, social media, um, I know you've done some cool work on the Schuylkill River. I, I can't really have trouble pronouncing this. The river that runs through Philadelphia. Um, I know you've done some cool work there in the past. Do you have anything cooking there that you might have revealed bits of on social media that you'd like to talk about? Sure, sure. People ask us what we're doing now. Um, and I like to say we're designing a submersible. Um, and they're like, well, what is a submersible? It's kind of like a submarine. Um, it uses the same principle. And basically, you, you take a, a vessel and you have multiple chambers and you fill it with water until it sinks. And we really wanted to provide access to the Schuylkill River, which historically was, in a way, the, the lifeblood of Philadelphia, industry um, life. But recently, the building, uh, buildings in the city have sort of turned their backs on the river. And so how do we bring people back to a kind of urban waterfront that has been polluted and has been remediated and now is being rediscovered? Um, so we're doing something called Float Lab, which is a submersible to be deployed in the Schuylkill River that will allow people from the city to come to the waterfront, inhabit the structure, and actually um, uh, descend into the river so they can get a sort of um, eye-level view of the water. So we're trying to present the river to the citizens in a context that's completely unfamiliar, um, bringing them into the river, literally having them peer at the water you know, from below the below the waterline or slightly above it to create that new kind of horizon of the water. Um, cool, challenging. You know, we're working with naval, naval architects to figure out how to ballast it properly, how to get the right flotation. We're learning all kinds of terms, like, um, you know, the term for how, how high is the, the vessel above the water, reserve buoyancy, all kinds of fun stuff that we never thought about before as architects, but that's what keeps it interesting. As long as you're always doing something that you don't know enough about, I think you'll always find, you know, design opportunities super, super enriching. I think the notion of reserve buoyancy we should use more in life, particularly in office context. So we need a little extra reserve buoyancy sometimes, especially on Friday afternoon. Yeah. Um, well, it's been a wonderful collaboration that we've had with you um, and friendship over the last several years. So thank you so much for coming in to talk to us and for sharing this crazy effort to move our headquarters uh, from uh, a more re remote location right down to where the center of the action is. So thanks again for your time, and I look forward to future collaborations too. Cool. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, yeah, Lee. hearing you talk about this space while in this space is a, a meta-ness that I really appreciate for sure. <laughs> Lee, thank you also for your participation in very insightful questions. Thank you, Pete. Um, and thank you to all our listeners. Uh, we hope you enjoyed today's version of the Resonance Test, uh, and we hope to catch you on future episodes as we explore the different ways that uh, people like Eric get their ideas out into the world and into people's lives and into rivers. Um, if you want to learn more about Continuum and the work that we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Thanks for listening.